Hi there. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Hillman Class Reunion podcast. Even though we release new episodes every week, we actually began recording prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and completed recording prior to the renewed attention towards the Black Lives Matter movement, which is why you may not hear us mention these important events, especially in earlier episodes. However, we want to assure you that the gravity of what we are experiencing is not lost among us. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy our first season of Hillman Class Reunion. Welcome to this installment of Hillman Class Reunion, where we will review the episodes or episodes four and five of season one of A Different World. Additionally, we will review episode five of season four of The Cosby Show, where Denise and Dr. Foster visit the Huxtable home in Brooklyn during the weekend. As a note, we structured the podcast to review each episode in chronological order. So pull out your blankets, your memories, and your flask if you want to, and hang out with us on the quad as we delve into some very interesting episodes of A Different World and The Cosby Show. So Portia, get us started with The Cosby Show Season 4, Episode 5. First of all, hey girl, hey. Oh, hey girl, hey. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Yeah. You know, we... (laughs) Uh, I don't know what's going to happen by the time this episode airs, but right now we are under alert. The coronavirus is out here. So, you know, we just, we trying our best. We trying our best to keep these episodes coming to you in the face of this pandemic. I don't know, y'all. Well, I think that we as African-Americans are going to be all right. We have survived a lot and Corona will not be taking us out. That's right. That's right. We got we got ginger ale. Ginger ale, honey. <laughs> ginger ale, some Vicks, and sit down somewhere. We'll do it every time. And Castrol and Robitussin. So we there get you to go. That. <laughs> there you go. All right. So if you somewhere hanging out, chilling, maybe, you know, trying to nurse a little cold, or uh, maybe they told you to stay home and telework and you might be trying to do some other stuff besides telework. You might be listening to us. You might be in the mood for watching, you know, a little different world or Cosby show. We got you. We got you. So we'll go ahead and start with season four, episode five of the Cosby show. And this episode is called Shakespeare. This episode premiered October 22nd, 1987. And like LaRonda said, we're going in chronological order. We mean it when we're going in chronological order. There's a reason why we're starting with this episode of the Cosby Show first, because it came on at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock Central. And then the next episode that came on was A Different World, which we will review next. Thank you for your scholastic insights, Dr. Portia, <laughs> and as well as your organization keeping us in order. That's right. That's right. All right. So the episode summary for this episode is we have two college professors at the Huxtable household helping Theo and his buddy Cockroach study Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. 
Meanwhile, Denise is home from school for the weekend and Cliff insists on barbecuing, even though it's wintertime. Gotta love my black people. Yes. And barbecue. (laughs) So, you know, this is the Cosby Show episode. So we know pretty much who's here. We got Bill Cosby. It's Heathcliff Huxtable, Felicia Rashad. It's Claire. Lisa Bonet is is here uh, for as Denise. Malcolm Jamal Warner as Theo. Tempest Bledsoe as Vanessa. Keisha Knight Pulliam as Rudy. We also have an appearance with Grandpa Huxtable and played by Earl Hyman. And then we have Walter Bradley, better known as Cockroach, played by the great Carl Anthony Payne II. And some of y'all may know him maybe a little bit better as Cole from uh, Martin. Martin. Yes. He's one of the few people that, that have been, that has had the honor of playing two very memorable characters in sitcom history. So we get to see Cockroach in this episode. We also get another appearance by Dr. Foster, played by Roscoe Lee Brown. And we meet Professor Jonathan Lawrence, played by Christopher Plummer. And we'll get into that a little bit later. For this episode, this episode has been produced by Marcy Carsey, George Crosby, and Tom Warner, directed by Jay Sandrich, and written by Matt Robinson. Now, Matt Robinson, you may, I don't know, maybe this might ring a bell, but if not, just briefly, you should know that Matt Robinson is a legend in television, in the television industry. He's mostly, yes, yes. He has written scripts for, you know, countless shows, Eight is Enough, Sanford and Son, he's written, he wrote lots of episodes for the Cosby show. And he actually wrote the script for, for the film called Amazing Grace. Starring Moms Mabley. Have you ever seen that film? I have never seen it, but I am familiar with the title. I don't know how, but somehow I saw it and I feel like I saw it on TV. Amazing Grace. And I was just, I was floored because this was the first time I had ever seen Moms Mabley like talking, acting, doing anything. I never knew that she had a film before. I had only heard about her doing uh, stand-up comedy. So, and they actually had quite a few um legends black comedic legends in that film so if you ever run across it it's worth watching just for the historical factor wow that is very interesting i did not know that she had an actual acting career i'm just familiar with her as a comedian on stage in a performance so i will definitely have to check that out yeah yeah i think it's one of the very few roles that she ever played i i want to say this was towards the end of her career and now you're making me think about um a documentary that was produced by whoopi goldberg about moms madeley that i definitely you know it's been on my list for a while so i definitely want to learn a bit more about her because um, she's had quite a career but anyway so back to matt robinson prolific writing career but he also is known to a lot of people a lot of former children, I guess they're grown adults now. If you ever watched Sesame Street back in the 70s, you might remember Matt Robinson as the first actor to play the role of Gordon in Sesame Street. Do you remember Gordon? Oh, I do remember Gordon. Gordon and Susan, yeah. So um, probably by the time we started watching Sesame Street, Matt Robinson had left the show, but he was the one who originated the role. And when um, when the show needed a last name for Gordon and Susan, they chose Matt Robinson's last name in tribute. Oh, wow. Nice. Yes. yes. And if that wasn't enough, 
Matt Robinson is Holly Robinson Pete's father. Oh, okay. Now that you say that, I do recall her saying that in interviews that her dad had played a character on Sesame Street. That's cool. right. That's Interesting right. Interesting fact. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He he died from Parkinson's in 2002. But I remember when that happened, of course, I you know, I knew who Holly Robinson Pete was and she would talk about her father and his disease. Yeah. And then she would also talk about his role as Gordon. But I had no idea that he was also a writer until I was doing research for this episode. And yeah, he's he's quite a legend in, in the television world. Cool. So, yes. Thanks so, for that insight. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into it. This episode opens with Cliff and Claire in their bedroom preparing for the day. And Claire says that it's November, but Cliff says that he wants to barbecue later on in the day. He is fixated on getting some barbecue on the grill. And as they are trying to, well, as Cliff is trying to wake Claire up, because Claire does not want to wake up and go to work, but Cliff is, he's pretty hyped. We find out that Dr. Foster and Denise are coming into town uh, from Hillman. So, you know, the first thing, <laughs> the first thing that I noticed, and the first thing that I notice all the time, whenever you see Black women laying down in bed, I'm always looking for the headscarf. I'm, I'm just, I love the Cosby show, but I always get bothered seeing Claire laying down on that pillow with no headscarf. I don't recall Claire ever wearing a headscarf. No. Never, she doesn't wear a headscarf and she and this time I noticed that she had a full face of makeup bracelet watch she might have had some rings on I'm just like gosh y'all could have y'all could have took y'all could have took the jewelry off at least <laughs> well you know Claire goes to bed and wakes up flawless I guess so I guess so. they don't even try to pretend like these people go to sleep for real so anyway, so that that's just my little pet peeve. So then the other thing that I that I thought about, and I don't know if they really make it clear, why is Dr. Foster in town anyway? Because we knew last time he was in town, he was there to give a lecture at a local university. But it just seems like Dr. Foster is just kind of hanging out this time. <laughs> it, that did seem to be the case. I actually looked for that in watching that episode, but I could not discern why he was there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess maybe he just really likes hanging out with the Huxtables. That could be it. That part. Or, <laughs> or maybe, you know, this show or this episode was built into this season to tie a different world or what was happening in Denise's life to make sure that it correlated or tied back to the Huxtable home in Brooklyn. Yeah. So, okay. So speaking of that, so in this episode, like I said, Claire says that it's November to point out why it's absurd that cliff would want to barbecue outside it's supposed to be november it's cold but this episode actually aired in october so there's a little discrepancy i don't know if anybody you know probably nobody picked up on it nobody cared but what's interesting <laughs> is that this episode was actually part of the previous season this was a season three episode that never aired oh yeah okay i don't know why they held on to it but they did and then they just you know squoze it in <laughs> into um season uh -huh. four so it works out and you know as we talked about in the previous episode we found out that during season three denise was actually a college freshman freshman she was already at hell right. so and they do you know they don't refer to any specific details in this episode so you don't know if she's freshman sophomore whatever it, it works out really well 
But yeah. Well, they they do note that she dropped Dr. Foster's class once she got the work schedule. Yeah, but they didn't they didn't note that, you know, whether or not she was a first year or a second year or anything. Oh, no, no. Yeah. All we know is that she's in school. Okay, so then we move on to the next scene and we see Theo and Walter, a.k.a. Cockroach, in the kitchen studying Julius Caesar. Meanwhile, Rudy and Vanessa are in the living room and Rudy is working on a fairy tale. And Vanessa asks her if she can read her story. Rudy reluctantly agrees and Vanessa... (laughs) She should have, she should have, you know, took the hint from Rudy. Rudy didn't want her to see it because Vanessa was immediately insulted when she read uh, the story and found out that Rudy named the dragon after her. I mean, what else do you do with your big sister's name (laughs) that you don't particularly, you love her, but you don't necessarily like her? Well... So I get it, Rudy. <laughs> I mean, you know, and Rudy was a little savage. She was just, you know, Vanessa asked her, why you put my name in there? And Rudy was like, I couldn't think of anybody else. Hmm. Truth hurts. Truth hurts, I guess. So are you a little biased or partial towards the big sister's portion? I am. I'm a big sister myself. You know, I I felt like Vanessa was within her right to ask the question. I felt like Rudy was a little spicy <laughs> for no reason. She was. But you know, it's it's all right. It's it's gonna resolve itself by the end. She was a little curt, but you know, <laughs> she was still cute. I get. You know, they do that a lot to to child characters, or at least back during this time, sure. they would they would give the little kids some little spice to their dialogue. They would come yeah. with some attitude. All right, so you know, so basically, they're setting it up. We're gonna be talking about literature here. We got we got the teenagers working on Shakespeare. We got the little kid working on her her own fairy tale story so setting the stage then we move on to the next scene where we see dr dr foster in the kitchen cutting up carrots as claire is looking out the back window watching cliff barbecue in this freezing cold then poor claire i know cliff is just out here by himself but he's all right he, he don't care He's because he's going to get that barbecue and everyone's going to love it. Meanwhile, we see Denise coming down the stairs and then she runs into Dr. Foster. It's almost as if she didn't know that he was going to be there. <laughs> I noticed that too. I don't know what's going on with the family communication, but she was not expected to see Dr. Foster in her in her kitchen. <laughs> I guess the parents knew, but may- maybe she did not. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Uh, or, or maybe Denise was the one that surprised them. They probably knew that Dr. Foster was coming and then Denise just showed up. True, true. But anyway, you know, they, they see each other and Dr. Foster kind of kind of gives her a bit of a tough time. He rats her out, <laughs> rats her out and informs Cliff and Claire that Denise actually had enrolled in her in his English class, but dropped it after one day after reading his syllabus. Right. But that's typical Denise. Yeah. Yeah. They it, it, Especially during her freshman year. It definitely follows that storyline of Denise kind of, you know, kind of struggling as a student, as opposed to Sandra, who seemed to be the ideal student. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm... And a- Go ahead. Avoiding work and response, avoiding hard work and responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we talked about this. LaRonda used to be a professor. I was. What kind, What what classes did you used to teach? I've taught several courses in economics. I've taught uh, micro 
undergraduate micro and macroeconomics, as well as graduate level uh, microeconomic theory. Woo. All right. All right. Come on, uh, smart faculty. <laughs> I've also, I've, and I've taught a course in international economics as well. I forgot about that. All right. Come on. Come yeah. on, uh, CV. <laughs> Come on, credentials. Yes. I thoroughly enjoy teaching, and I do recall having several students who tended to operate like Miss Denise Huxtable, but they were lovable nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you probably had the experience of, you know, students showing up for the first day of class, maybe reading the syllabus, and then they don't show up again. Have you ever taken that personally, or like, you know, how did you experience that? Absolutely not. But in higher ed, it's particularly common that students or you will see enrollment in your course drop off substantially after refund checks. So (laughs) once they got those refund checks, you expect students to fall off anyway. But no, I never take it personally. Okay. Okay. That's good. In addition, I got, I got really good reviews on ratemyprofessor.com, including several hot chili peppers. So the ego was (laughs) pretty much inflated and Nothing anyone could do to change that. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah, girl. Yeah. All right. So the doorbell rings and Cliff goes and opens the door and he is greeted by grandpa who stops by the house with his friend, Dr. Jonathan Lawrence. And they inform Cliff that they are on their way to a jazz club in the village, but they decided to stop by. Dr. Lawrence lost a bet to grandpa because they bet, <laughs> grandpa bet him that <laughs> the, the, the smoke that they smelled coming there was coming from the Huxtable's household. Um, so they were, right. so he was surprised to, to see that he, uh, that Cliff was out there barbecuing in the wintertime. But then, Cliff informs them that Dr. Foster is here for the evening. So they decide to stick around, stay for dinner and hang out. Now, you know, what's interesting is that Dr. Lawrence, he is a drama professor at Columbia University. So, you know, just it's it's just it's always so striking to me. I'm always going to have to say, you know, mention something about this. Just their proximity to academia is so fascinating mm-hmm. in the way that they portrayed that, um, you know, with Dr. Absolutely. Foster just, you know, sitting in the kitchen, cutting up carriage. You got Dr. Lawrence just dropping by. It's, uh, you know, it, again, a, a multi-generational Hillman family. It's just, it's really cool to see that. And I don't know if we've really ever seen that since where, you know, you, you see a family that has, that that comfort level with the world of academia. Yeah, I can't recall. And then the other thing is that, again, the role of Dr. Lawrence is played by the great actor, Christopher Plummer. He is an Emmy, Tony, and Oscar winner. Okay. Yes. Uh, just, just a Grammy away from that EGOT. And <laughs> he was born in Canada. For some reason, I thought he was British, but he is Canadian. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's actually best known for his role as Captain George Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Have you ever seen The Sound of Music? Oh, I have not. I have seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never seen it in its entirety. Yeah, same here. Same here. Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably his best known role. And he's been um, most recently seen in the movie Knives Out as the patriarch Harlan Thrombey. 
Um, so he still has a very active acting career. He's still with us. He's 90 years old now. But yeah. oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Bless his heart. Yeah. So Christopher Plummer made his appearance on The Cosby Show. So next we see everybody in the living room, the whole family, cockroaches there, Dr. Lawrence, Dr. Foster. I think they're just, you know, just kind of hanging out, eating dessert. And then they just start chatting. And um, one thing leads to another. And Dr. Foster, Dr. Lawrence, and Grandpa all attempt to help Theo and Cockroach understand Julius Caesar by reciting Mm -hmm. passages. So you get to see, you know, Dr. Lawrence do this, you know, I don't know, soliloquy, whatever you call it. And then you see Dr. Foster do his thing. And then you see Grandpa get into it. And he does yeah. a little piece. Yeah. And it was, I, I, I really appreciate they had Theo ask the question, you know, Grandpa, how did you learn Shakespeare? Where, where'd you get that from? Mm-hmm. And so Grandpa told him that he used to travel with the jazz caravan and he liked to read Shakespeare in his downtime. So that's how he was able to memorize Shakespeare. So that was really cool to see, you know, that moment of classical literature, you know, just kind of be put forth in front of the general public, you know, and, and the Cosby show did a lot of that type of stuff. The Cosby show introduced a lot of people to literature. They introduced a lot of people to jazz music. Absolutely. Art. art, Yeah. uh, To artists, musicians. It was a very, you know, somebody should probably, if they haven't already, somebody should really do a deep dive into the Cosby show's connection to the arts. Mm-hmm. Because they definitely embraced that and and really took the responsibility of introducing things to the general public in ways that no other sitcom Absolutely. did at that time or probably since. Yeah. And then of course, you know, again, we earlier in the episode we saw Rudy working on her fairy tale. At the end, she was she finally was done writing her story, and Dr. Foster, Dr. Lawrence, and Grandpa acted it out for her. It was the world premiere. Which was so adorable. Yes. And and we got a chance to see Vanessa redeemed. Did they re <laughs> did she rename the dragon or was the dragon a nice dragon? I forgot what it was. I forgot too, but I know she did name Vanessa a witch though. <laughs> that's it. That's it. She did make her a witch. Or she named the witch Vanessa. <laughs> she made Vanessa a witch. But it but it wasn't a bad witch. It's a good witch. No, no. Okay, now we got one last scene. One last scene after everybody's done, everybody's gone. You see Cliff and Claire. They're about to sit down and enjoy a movie. And that's when Theo and Cockroach come downstairs, newly inspired after an evening with the two professors. And they decide that they are going to perform their version of Friends, Romans, Countrymen for Cliff and Claire. And child they start beatboxing and rapping (laughs) and it was you know it was very memorable of course cliff and claire just kind of like stunned like oh my gosh what is this (laughs) what is this noise but you know it again it was it was just very of course as a kid it was so cool to see it was very these these teenagers these guys doing hip-hop right there on TV. Like, you know, and this is 80s hip-hop. So, you know, beatboxing, dancing, that was all a part of it. 
Right. And incorporating it into their school assignment was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. To, you know, and then just to kind of see their reinterpretation of Julius Caesar after they had such a difficult time grasping the language is it, you know, Shakespeare is not easy to Mm -hmm. understand. You really have to work with it. So, you know, to see them reinterpret it for their, you know, to make it current for them was very, very cool. Right. Did you all have to recite Friends, Romans, Countrymen in any of your literature classes or rather in your English literature classes? No. Oh, wow. So I had to recite that in my 10th grade English literature class. My teacher was Mrs. Patricia West. She what? well, she's retired now, but she's a legendary English teacher in my hometown. Just hands down, one of the best teachers I ever had. She introduced me and all of her students to just such an amazing breadth of literature from across the world and especially African-American literature, which I'm forever grateful to her for. for. But I do distinctly remember having to recite Friends, Romans, Countrymen. And because I was such a good student and also marginally cocky uh, and could generally memorize things pretty quickly, I waited until the last minute to learn that speech and I bombed it on the first go round. And thankfully, Mrs. West exercised the grace and mercy of Christ himself. And she gave me a second chance, (laughs) but forever etched in my memory. I do remember one of the first lines, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I've come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. I will never forget that line. Probably because that was the only line I remembered the first time I went up to recite it. (laughs) Well, for me, it wasn't friends, Romans, countrymen. We did study Shakespeare in high school. Ah, I can't remember what the play was, but we had like a um, oration kind of contest, I guess. And so mm-hmm. I never liked public speaking. I, you know, I'm still shaky with it. Not my favorite thing to mm-hmm. do, but I wanted to challenge myself. I, I knew that, you know, I wanted to just kind of push myself and I decided to sign up. I practiced as much as I could. I had to remember this speech and I got there and I froze. I couldn't remember anything. And I had memorized her as I thought I did. I got up there and it wasn't in front of a big crowd, but it, you know, it was in front of people. And I was so embarrassed. I was so mad at myself because I felt like I knew it. I just, ah, I just, I froze. So yeah, so that's the closest that I ever got to you know, maybe performing something. Uh, I don't know if performing is the word, but, you know, just doing a speech related to Shakespeare, like Theo and Cockroach. Maybe if I would have wrapped it, gotcha. perhaps I would have memorized it. I don't know. <laughs> Had your homegirl, yeah. your homeboy beatboxing, beatboxing yeah, behind yeah. you. So, so that's it. That is the episode. That's the Shakespeare episode. It wasn't Denise heavy, but it was enough. We, we got that Hillman connection there with Dr. Foster and Denise. And again, you know, that, that higher education line all the way through. I guess after the break, we will come back with a review of season one, episode four of A Different World. Cool beans. See you on the other side. 
We are Podcasters United to condemn the tragic murders of Black people at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black lives matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are witness to it. In creating digital media, we hope to build audiences that will return week after week to hear our voices, and we will use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality. And we encourage our audiences to be educated, engaged, and to take action. All season long, we will be donating to a variety of groups fighting against police violence and systemic racism and fighting for the safety and security of Black communities. This week, we will be donating to Black Trans Advocacy Coalition, and if you're able to, we encourage you to do the same. Go to blacktrans.org to learn more about the organization and ways you can support. Again, that's B-L-A-C-K-T-R-A-N-S dot org. Hey, welcome back, classmates. It's now time for us to discuss A Different World, Season 1, Episode 4, entitled, Those Who Can't Tutor. This episode aired (laughs) October 22nd, 1987. In this episode, we have Dwayne Wayne and the lovely Whitley Gilbert, who find themselves in an awkward position after they have unintentionally violated the campus dorm curfew rules. So, who's in this episode? We have the usual suspects, Denise Huxtable, played by Lisa Bonet, Jaleesa Vinson, Don Lewis, Maggie, Marissa Tomei, Dwayne Wayne, Kadeem Hardison, Whitley Gilbert, played by Jasmine Guy, our dorm director, Stevie Rollin, played by the lovely Miss Loretta Devine. We also see, uh, or rather, we have our first appearance of Walter, played by the comedian Sinbad. We get a glimpse of Ron Johnson who's played by Daryl M. Bell. Eventually, we we will get to know him as Dwayne Wayne's buddy. And also, we see the reoccurring character of Allison, who is played by Kim Wayne. Production (laughs) credits for this episode go to The Usual Suspects, Marcy Carsey, Annie Betts, George Crosby, Beverly Cashin, Joanne Cruley-Kerner, Joe Gannon, Thad Mumford, and Tom Warner. And then this episode is directed by Kim Friedman. So in season one, this is the first episode we see that is directed by Ms. Kim Friedman. I did look up some information about her. According to IMDb, she has about 42 directing credits. Some of the directing credits, uh, Dr. Flowers, that you may be familiar with include, but are not limited to, Star Trek. The Love Boat. Do you remember The Love Boat? I I vaguely recall The Love Boat. You know, I was young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't recall. I don't remember if I watched The Love Boat in syndication with my parents, but I do remember The Love Boat. And I did have a crush on the bartender, probably because he was the only black person. Really? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Other other than like the special guest. But uh, back to Ms. Friedman. Uh, 
Kim Freeman also has directed episodes of Lizzie McGuire, In the House, and Beverly Hills, 90210. The writers for this episode are Bill Cosby and Susan Falls, or Fails. So let's get into this episode. So this was a, a pretty interesting episode for reasons that we will unpack as we go through the conversation. So the show opens up in the pit, which seems to be the center of student life on campus. Maggie is interviewing her peers to solicit feedback, their opinions and perspectives on this campus-wide midnight curfew. Now, Dr. Flowers, you are the music guru. Tell us what's happening in the pit in the background. That's subtle, but very, very important. Yeah, it, it really does open up basically to this music. Uh, the music is like the first thing that you that you notice in the pit. So in the background is playing or in the foreground is playing is this song called Free Nelson Mandela. And it's a song by the special AKA, which I, I have a vague memory of hearing that song at some point. I don't think I heard it at that time, but, um, you know, for some reason, and I've seen this episode a couple times, but for some reason, it just really stood out to me this time. So I did a little digging and found out that, you know, the history of the special AKA, it's a British group and the backing vocals were provided by a group called Aphrodisiac, which included a young Karen Wheeler. And if that name sounds familiar, Karen Wheeler actually went on to go sing for Soul to Soul. She was the lead singer of Soul to Soul. So you remember the song Back to Life? Back to Life. Back to reality. Oh, girl. And then the beat drop. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. That song is classic. Belly made it even more of a classic. That opening scene where you see everybody in that in that glow, was it day glow colors or whatever? And they're playing, you know, they have a little acoustic version. I don't know if it's acoustic, but uh, vocals only without the music with Back to Life. Yes. It's really, you're just hearing Karen Wheeler open up belly yes and then the beat drops i was yes i was in where was i i was i was somewhere recently and they were they were playing the vocals and we were so excited a bunch of people my age so you know we were so excited i think we were having this flashback to the 90s and we were like drop the beat dj please drop the beat and he finally dropped it everybody went crazy where was i i don't know somewhere recently but anyway that is so cool and fascinating i'm so glad you picked that out i had not i did not recognize this song i had never heard it but i'm gonna have to go back and google that yeah you know and it's it's interesting i guess maybe around this time the 80s if you go back and, uh, you know, somebody should do a deep dive on this. I feel like in the mid to late 80s, it was a it was a big time for black British music. So, you know, we saw Soul to Soul. You had this group, the special AKA. What's the name of the group that did pass the Dutchie from the left hand side? I forgot the name of that group, but it was, you know, a bunch of kids. They were British. Talking about smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Girl. <laughs> But according to them, I think it was supposed to be a pot of food. I don't know what it was. Girl, whatever. <laughs> I know when, um, oh, they were called Musical Youth. M- musical Youth, that's it, yes. Yeah, but I remember when I was a kid, I was very, very young and just doing the best I could with the intuition and intellect that I had at that time. And I just thought that they were talking about double dutch maybe and switching the rope off for turning. <laughs> That's what I thought. Past the Dutchie myth. Yeah, it, it wasn't until I was grown 
that I, you know, found out that there was another interpretation. So yeah, yeah. I think the group Loose Ends, they, I think they were British. I remember them. Yep. Yep. So it was, it was an interesting time for, for Black Brits. But right. yeah, so, uh, you know, I remember when Soul to Soul hit, it was big. I think they won Grammys. Yeah, they I, they did win Grammys for Back to Life and Keep On Moving. And yeah, they were pretty big. But anyway, that's that's the connection to the song Free Nelson Mandela. Now, again, this episode premiered in 1987. And around that time, the movement to free Nelson Mandela was growing. He wasn't released from prison until 1990. But again, you know, the anti-apartheid and, and free Nelson Mandela movement was building internationally. Yeah, so Nelson Mandela, he, if you don't know, was in prison from 1964 to 1990. So that spanned his age of, uh, I think he went in at 46 and he came out at 72 years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was, it's amazing how long he was in prison, but I'll never forget watching TV and not quite I don't know if I really knew who Nelson Mandela was, but of course I, I found out that he was very important. And, you mm -hmm. know, just footage of him, live footage of him walking out hand in hand with his wife, Winnie. And, you know, they got their fist up and they're, you know, just walking out in triumph. I had no idea that the man was 72 years old when he was walking out of prison. I did not either. And I remember the moment I was at my grandparents' house and I was about 10 years old. And I remember the news was on in my grandparents' house and my grandmother, when they were showing that scene you're talking about, she started crying. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Grandma, or we called her dear. I was like, why are you crying? And she shared with me the information about Ma Nelson Mandela. And she told me how, because I had no idea who he was. She told me that he was, you know, he lived in South Africa and that he had fought very hard for the rights of black people in South Africa. And because he had done that, he had been in jail for a number of years and she was just so happy and overjoyed that he was out and she, that she was moved to tears. That's one of the memories you know, of my grandmother and my first memory of Nelson Mandela that I do hold to and that I hold very dear, actually. Yeah. Because my grandmother yeah. actually passed away a few months after. Oh, wow. Wow. So after she lived that, long yeah. enough to see Nelson Mandela walk yep. out as a free man. Yeah. It's, I mean, his, his entire story is just amazing, absolutely inspiring. But you know, when you, when you kind of dig into the details a little bit, it is, it's astounding the things that he was able to accomplish, but also endure. So, you know, he went into prison six years after he married Winnie Mandela. So he only had six years with her and then went into prison, spent the majority of that time I think it was Robin Island, which was a very, very tough, yeah, very, very tough prison. Um, and when he walked out in 1990, he only had six more years with Winnie Mandela and then they divorced. Um, right. so the majority of their marriage, they were, they were separated. They didn't get yeah. much time. They didn't get much time together. So, you know, just, just right. think about just, you know, what was taken, not just his, his time his life, but, you know, what they could have been and the family that right, they could exactly. have had. They did have children, but, you know, this, just the family that they could have had together. But anyway, yeah. So it's, you know, right. it's, a, it's a very interesting and I'm sure a very purposeful choice, a musical choice uh, made by the people at A Different World. I'm really glad that they did that. 
And shout out to the the crew for doing that. I know the season one or the first season gets a lot of flack for not really highlighting the nuances of a black college, but kudos to them for incorporating that aspect of uh, the of important black culture. Yeah. And thanks for catching that Portia and providing that insight. It's very subtle. Yeah. And, and you're right. And to, to that point later on, of course, under Debbie Allen's, you know, direction, we'll be talking a bit more about the anti-apartheid movement and, and South Africa for sure. It'll, you know, it'll be a plot point as opposed to right. a song playing at the pit. So, but so th- that song is playing in the foreground, as you mentioned in the beginning. And Maggie is interviewing various persons in the pit about their perspective on the new curfew. So one of the persons she asks is Dwayne Wayne. And Dwayne Wayne thinks that the curfew sucks. <laughs> then she asks Whitley, what does our Southern Belle say about that, Portia? Oh, what did she say? Anything you can do after midnight, you can do before midnight. <laughs> Great <laughs> accent. Great, 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 great imitation of Willie. Yeah. So Willie pretty much backs it. She has the posture of the teacher's pet, the ideal student, the keeper of the rules. So just I have to ask you this. When you were at Colgate, did you all have dorm curfews? Did you all have co-ed dorm also? We had co-ed dorms and we had, I want to say we had single, single gender or I guess same gender dorms. And if we didn't, we definitely had like single gender um, floors. So in my dorm, it was uh, guys and girls, but then we had separate floors for guys, separate floors for girls, and there were no curfews. We were just free to come and go as we pleased. And I guess there's pros and cons to it, but you know, did you have curfews at your school? So we did not, we did not have a curfew but there was a certain time that the door was locked. Oh, and yeah, that, we had that, yeah. Yeah, so it was almost like a curfew. But again, it wasn't that we had to be in our dorms. But the doors did lock after a certain hour. And there were no co-ed dorms. They were all single gender And so our freshman dorm was Judson Cross. And even the campus... They did install these card readers for our IDs, but the things never worked. <laughs> so it was supposed to work after hours and they would work for like a day and then they would become defunct and they would not work. So we had a very awful habit of propping the door open mm. at night if you were leaving, which in hindsight was very dangerous, but we did not really think of it that way. And also it was great. To have a good friend nearby or who lived in the dorm who wasn't as wild as I was or not as wild as me and some of my friends were who would we could trust to always be in her room that we could call and she would come open the door for us. So. Mm, yeah. But no. if that didn't work, then because, you know, safety was a priority, uh, campus security would let you in. So you weren't locked out of the dorm, but the doors did lock. And that was for safety reasons. So we didn't have our curfew, but, you know, the doors did lock at a certain time. Yeah. You know, and, you know, but let me know. But for some reason, I feel like 
When I do hear about schools having curfews, like what we see on this episode, it's more mm-hmm. the HBCUs that I've seen that will enact a curfew. Is that is you know, yeah. am I wrong in in that impression? I don't think I don't think you're wrong. I think HBCUs it, it may be more uh, prevalent in smaller private liberal arts colleges, maybe in, in Catholic schools, for example, or schools that have some type of religious affiliation. Okay. I think one of the reasons why we may have seen it in HBCUs, especially back then, even though, you know, when we were coming up or when we, when we were in college, you know, times were definitely more modern, but our colleges held on to a lot of those old school traditions. We were slower to let those, to let those go. But I am familiar with curfews existing at schools, at parochial colleges as well, schools that have some type of church or religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. So that may have something to do with it as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, so Maggie's getting some perspective on these curfews. So there are those who are for them, probably more students that are against them in totality. But meanwhile, as they are having this conversation, Denise comes in and she reveals to the crew that she's gotten a D on her calculus exam and acknowledges that she needs help. And who comes to the rescue? Dwayne Wayne. My boy. (laughs) So what I particularly love about this particular scene is that a black man is coming to offer help in a subject area in which black people in general are scarce of, which is STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And unfortunately, the reaction that he gets is not a positive one. No one believes him. So Dr. Flowers, as our resident STEM expert, just give us, what are your thoughts about that whole scene or breakdown? Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, you can look at it in multiple ways. So up until this point, we don't have very much reason to believe that Dwayne Wayne is this, you know, mathematical genius. Because <laughs> everything True. that he talks about is more, mostly focused on girls. He's just hitting on anything right. that's walking. He's always hanging out at Gilbert Hall. You know, it, he, he seems to have a one-track mind. So it seems as though this might be just another way for him to try to push up on Denise by saying, oh, I can help you. And I think that's how she interprets it, too. She's just like, you know, get away from me. I'm serious. You know, I need somebody who's really trying to help me pass this class. But, yeah, on a on a different level, it it is. Uh, I don't I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, it it's a little sad that, you know, you have this black man who's not initially believed when he talks about his his intellect and his, you know, mathematical prowess, if you will. But, you know, right. it's, it's short lived because, of course, he he steps it up and he he proves himself and he shows that he knows what he's talking about. Um, and right. now you see this this new added layer, this character development here where, you know, on on the one hand, Wayne Wayne is kind of silly and, you know, not serious. And he's mm-hmm. just, you know, flitting around and just talking to girl, girl after girl after girl. But this kid is a genius. This guy is a genius and he's going to go places. Right. And, you know, he he exactly. loves math, unabashedly loves math. Yes. And I think that's so cool. And we get to see this because he offers to tutor Denise. And as you so poignantly pointed out, no one believes him. And, you know, it's reasonable for them to assume that he is, 
you know, not being honest about his mathematical expertise. But Denise, to her credit, does go and seek help through, you know, an on-campus tutoring service. So she's in a study group in her dorm and she's waiting for this random anonymous tutor to show up. And who shows up? None other than Dwayne Wayne himself. And again, her reaction is one of disbelief, thinking that he's trying to pull a fast one over. And then she basically asked Dwayne to prove himself, and he does. So go, Dwayne. Kudos to you. Mm-hmm. So shortly after, well, after a long night of studying and burning the candle at both ends, it looks like not only is Dwayne Wayne an exceptional math student, but he's also a really good math teacher. And uh, I really, as a teacher myself, I do appreciate the excitement that he has and the innovativeness that he uses to help Denise and to assist her in understanding, you know, these very abstract and difficult concepts. And they're having such a good time studying and she's learning so much that eventually they lose track of time and they realize that Dwayne Wayne has broken the curfew or that, you know, they've both broken curfew. So in essence, because, you know, he was there with her, I guess they both should have been keeping up with time. And then they come up with a strategy to sneak Dwayne out. And one of their concerns is that, you know, Denise could potentially get in trouble if she gets caught with Dwayne in the dorm. And Dwayne is adamant about protecting Denise so that she doesn't get thrown out of school, which I can appreciate. So they come up with this brilliant plan, which is to sneak him outside through the fire escape. But the problem is that the fire escape is outside of whose room? Your girl, Whitley Gilbert. And I don't know if you picked this up, but when they go into Whitley's room, she's fast asleep. She has her sleep gate sound in the background, her very cute sleeping mask, and she's having a dream. And in her dream, she is sailing with her family. Did you catch that? I did catch that. So, you know, again, we have an example of the socioeconomic status of Whitley's family. And as Dwayne is escaping through the or via the fire escape, Whitley doesn't catch him, but the dorm director herself catches him, Stevie. And so Stevie apprehends him. She's in the room. And who shows up? I don't know. Walter. Oh. Yeah. So we get to see Walter played by Sinbad, who ends up being also a very pivotal character in the show. And is he the male counterpart to Stevie? Is he the men's resident director? It seems that way. Yeah. He did say fellow RD, which I'm guessing is residential director. Okay, cool. So, you know, they are questioning Dwayne and Whitley about their whereabouts and Dwayne is careful not to rat out Denise and Whitley you know seems like a deer understandably so seems like a deer caught in headlights because not only is she being accused of something that she did not do but she's being accused of doing something or having someone in her room whom she absolutely detests at least on, on the surface so they agree to come back either the following day or a few days later. I don't know if they agreed. They were told to come oh, back because there's true. going to be a hearing in, in Stevie's true. room at seven o'clock. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Flowers, for that point of clarification. <laughs> That's important. So, they were told. <laughs> they were told. You're right, girl. You're right. You're right. Get, set the record straight. Let the, Let record, the record show. show. In the words of Miss Claire Hustable. So meanwhile, as on many campuses, the word spreads. Mm. 
Mm. And girl, can we talk about it? Listen, okay. So this is where the episode turned for me because I think we we talked about in a previous episode yes. just how, you know, again, first season gets a bad rap. Some of these episodes might be a little bit dry, a little bit, you know, plug and play. It could have been, you know, these these scripts possibly could have been for any sitcom, but. This right here, I was like, oh, okay, this really feels relevant. This really feels important. This this feels more like um, kind of foreshadowing yeah. what's to come in terms of a different world being very relevant to its time and even, you know, beyond its time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The, the different ways in which Whitley and Dwayne are treated by their classmates and the way that word spreads with, you know, word being that Dwayne snuck out of Whitley's room because they must have been doing something at night. They Yeah, it was assumed they were having sex. But, you know, let, let's just shoot this straight. No chaser. That's the other thing, too. So, right. In the 80s, especially back then, they were just they, they had really interesting ways of talking right. about things without talking about things. So they weren't saying sex. They weren't saying, right you know, the, the actual word sex. They were just uh, yes. all kinds of euphemisms. and. <laughs> but let's be clear. It was strongly implied, right? It was. Oh, yeah. It was like, I know this is sounds like an oxymoron, but it was explicitly implied. <laughs> yes, that, it sure you was. Know, I was going to, I'm trying to look up the exact phrase. I'm trying to look up the phrase that uh, Whitley used um, basically to try to clear her name. And she was like, you know, no one has broken through my fortress or something like that. Oh, she did. She did. Oh, no one has ever breached her fortress. That's the phrase that right. she used. So Whitley's basically like, I'm a virgin. And mm -hmm. here's where I became disappointed. And again, this is me watching these episodes again as an adult. I'm elated at the fact that there's this black man stemming. He's a math genius. He's a great teacher. He's helped Denise. But when he walks into the pit and there's, a, you notice there's a group of guys, it's all guys and they're in this yeah. back corner and he walks in and it's, kind of like all eyes on him and these guys are dapping him up like hey like you the man blah 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 mm -hmm. just you know really really for, I don't want to say supporting but you know just really big upping him for you know his, yep. his apparent exploit or his supposed assumed exploit with this young lady. And number one, the first thing that bothered me is that he doesn't say anything to disprove them. He just kind of soaks it all in and gloats in it. Mm -hmm. And then does when does Whitley, I think Whitley comes over to the group of guys and just the look of disdain and this and dishonor that they exhibit. I don't know if she actually went to them. So they... <laughs> it's a little heavy handed. They had her come down the stairs, first of all, in all red, as if she's, you know, some scandalized woman. Oh, I didn't even pick uh, up on she, it. Okay. Yeah, wearing an all red suit. And then she's just, but she also just has this, um, you know, her face just looks like she is so embarrassed and just, right. you know, mortified. Humiliated. Humiliated, yes. yes. Humiliated, but still trying to keep her dignity. Um, right. knowing that she's being lied on and she walks past them. And of course they're cat calling her and talking about, you know, you should, right. uh, well, I don't know what the phrase was, but basically like, you know, I'm, I'm free tonight. 
Let, let's do something like when can tonight. I, when can I come to your room? There it is. Yeah, when like can when I can come I come to your dorm room? Exactly. Yeah, that's what happens. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and mind you, again, Ron Johnson, this is the first time that we see the character of Ron Johnson, and he's one of the guys that are, you know, patting Dwayne Wayne on the back. He gets a, a real yep. short line, but basically, I forgot what he said, but he was basically like, you know, good job, Dwayne. Right, right. And he's just it all up he's he's taking it all in he's never been you know he's never felt better he's never felt more like the man than he does right now right exactly and you know really like i said it's it's not looked upon it's it's obvious that they're not treated the same and i'm like if this is not art imitating life Mm. i don't know what is and as subtle as you know the the language was that they used that was very relevant and i automatically thought to thought about or rather i could relate that experience to things and rumors that were spread on my campus and even you know how we treat these instances today we basically always put the thought stamp on the the female in the situation and the guy in the situation, you know, is treated with kid gloves and is basically put in a place of esteem and honor. And it's so not right. And it's it's so not fair. And it really it bothers me. Yeah. Men are congratulated for the things that women are shamed for. And it's not exactly it's not right at all. But I'm glad that they that they put that front and center for us to see, you know, and I was a little it irked me a little bit. And I don't know. I don't know what what they could have done, but it irked me that I felt like they kind of gave Dwayne Wade a way out by couching it as, oh, he's just trying to save Denise's honor. That's why he's he's not saying anything. He's trying to cover for Denise so that she doesn't get in trouble. But it's like, okay, but surely there were better ways to do that. You're trying to cover Denise's honor, or, you know, protect Denise's honor, but you're trying to ruin Whitley's honor. That's not fair. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, initially when they're trying to figure out their plan of escape, you're like, oh, you know, that's so sweet. He doesn't want Denise to get in trouble. But at the same time, he's doing it at the expense of another woman. And I'm convinced that it doesn't have to be that way. And again, even though it's very nuanced, you still see in the, you know, in the acting and directing. And I don't, I don't know how intentional this was, but again, he is gloating. He is soaking this honor up and mm-hmm. he knows it's wrong mm-hmm. because even if, you know, I'm sure there was a way that he could have defended Denise while maintaining or defending Whitley's honor as well. Right, right. Because he never said, no, it wasn't like that. It's been a misunderstanding. He never uttered a mumbling word. And you could just see, you could see the gloat on his face. He was loving it. Another thing I want to point out in that scene, when Whitley comes down the stairs, again, she's wearing all red. You hear Stevie Wonder's skeletons in the background. Sure do. Yep. Yep. So, you know, again, just kind of, you know, everything just really building up to this moment where there's a confrontation between Whitley and and Dwayne. So she, you know, she she's just again humiliated and she finally gets up in Dwayne's face and she's like, you know, you need to tell the truth. You know nothing happened. And then he's like, Oh, well, you know, I can't really say that. You know, I'm not gonna lie and say that nothing happened. I was in your room and she had it and she slapped the taste 
out that boy's mouth. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, there you can. go. I, I was so glad. Slapped him, made him put his glasses back on. <laughs> yes, exactly. So definitely happy to to see that. Yeah. And you know what else? This is the other thing. Last thing. I appreciated that Denise walked up to Whitley and said, you know, I believe you. I know you didn't do anything mm-hmm. that they're accusing you of. I did not appreciate, mm-hmm. though, that Denise didn't say the truth, didn't tell the truth because she saw right. her fellow, you know, fellow woman out here yes. getting trashed, her reputation getting trashed. And even though, you know, at least at this time, uh, at this point in a different world, Whitley's kind of like, you know, the mean girl, the villain a little bit. She didn't deserve that. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of was looking at Denise a little side eye too. Like, girl, you, yeah. you're, you're an accomplice. You're an accomplice right now. So yeah, that scene in the pit pretty was pretty mm-hmm, dynamic. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate it, them incorporating that. So after the scene in the pit, we get to the reckoning in the dorm. Now, speaking of colors and wardrobe, even though I totally overlooked the red outfit that Whitley had on in the pit, the first thing that stood out to me was her all-white Victorian dress that she wears to the meeting with the resident directors as well as Jaleesa to, you know, determine or to get the And you strength. know, Jaleesa, Jaleesa's there because she's the door monitor, remember? She won, she she beat Whitley in the, right, right. <laughs> in the election. Right, right. No, yeah, so Whitley showed up and she was in pure white. She was innocent, white as snow, but girl... To me, she looked like she was, the first thing I thought of was she looks like a sorority founder. She looks like one of those photos that you see of the founders of a sorority. Oh my gosh. She looked like a charter member, didn't she? Of like the beta chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha, my sorority. She she looked like one of my founders from Delta. I said, oh my gosh. And then- what was so cool was that she meant, you know, in her speech to defend yes. herself, she mentioned that, uh, what what did she say? She said, you can ask any of the uh, frater- male fraternities on campus. And she named four of the Divine Nine, honey. She said, ask the Kappas, the Sigmas, the Alphas, or the Omegas. That's right. That's right. She was like. I am not a thought. I don't have a reputation. So why in the world would I be with Dwayne Wayne? Shout out to the Kappa Sigmas, Alphas, and Omegas. No shout out to the Iotas. I'm so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. sorry. Y'all didn't get no shout so out. So sorry to this man. I'm so sorry to this man. They, they forgot. They forgot. It was an honest mistake. It they wasn't no honest mistake. No that was on they purpose. That was on purpose. Well, we shouting them out now. Shout out to the Iotas. If we had to rewrite it, we would put y'all in there. <laughs> um, You know, and I don't think it was until this point that I, it felt like that was a very, very clear signal that this is a black college campus. I mean, of course there's black students there, but you know, what, what distinguishes this show and this school from any other school is, Mm -hmm. you know, Whitley being able to rattle off all of those fraternities and everyone in the room understands exactly what she's saying. Again, kind of foreshadowing right. what's to come under um, Debbie Allen's leadership. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was a little surprised to even hear that mentioned during the first season. Right. And you noted that Jaleesa was in the room because she was the dorm monitor. And, you know, I also want to point out, and you did allude to this earlier when we were talking about the pit, 
interesting is that Jaleesa comes in there and she has a bias because she is not a Whitley mm. fan. So she basically ready to throw the books at Whitley and throw her under mm-hmm. the bus. I mean, not under the bus. She's ready to throw her under the bus because, you know, she, I guess for Jaleesa, Whitley has this persona of being the perfectionist and, you know, this perfect person. But at the same time, she's annoying. So I think Jaleesa's like, ha, like you're, you're not as perfect as you want to, you know, portray yourself to be. So Jaleesa definitely has some Well, bias. not just that, you know, she feels like she feels like Whitley is guilty. And, and what she wants to pin her on is her hypocrisy. Because remember, at the beginning, we see right. her being quoted True. as saying, yep. you know, Basically, what you again, what you can do after midnight, you can do before midnight. And, you know, so now she looks like, oh, okay, you you and, you know, in public, you can sit up here and have this whole persona of nobody's breaching your fortress. But Mm -hmm. we know what's going down, girl. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the Q&A ensue. No one seems to be believing the account of Whitley or Dwayne. Dwayne still does not tell the whole truth because he's still trying to protect Denise. But thankfully, as in all sitcoms or most sitcoms, especially sitcoms from the 80s and 90s, there is some good, peaceful resolve. Denise's conscience gets the best of her. She comes in the room and she tells the whole truth about the situation and why Dwayne was. caught in the fire escape outside of Whitley's room and, you know, the situation uh, basically kind of resolves itself from that point. Yeah. Denise tells the truth finally. And then they have to apologize to, to Whitley. Um, you know, Stevie, well, you know, Whitley just kind of is like, I told you. And yes, Whitley. Yeah. Whitley is like, I told you. And Whitley said, and Whitley demands an apology. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she makes the statement to Stevie. She's like, I, and I want an apology, a public apology in the student newspaper. And I don't blame her because she had been publicly humiliated. humiliated. Right. Yeah. So absolutely give her a public apology. And we see later that in the paper that uh, Maggie is on the staff of Denise wrote a letter of apology and, you know, explaining the situation, which I could appreciate. Yes, she got, she got her apology. So I was really glad about that, but yeah, this was, this was an action packed episode. It was a lot going on in just a few short minutes. Yeah. I must say that I was pleasantly surprised at, you know, of course they didn't do it like my girl Debbie Allen, you know, covers these topics. But I was happy to see a topic like this being covered in season one of A Different World. Because again, you know, as we started this project, I did go in very biased, you know, not remembering, especially the early episodes of A Different World season one, just, you know, not expecting them to cover anything of much substance. So, you know. I, I I was pleasantly surprised to have a topic like this covered and that, you know, we could have this type of discussion about the episode. And in that vein, it's time to do our ranking, should you choose to do so. So if you were to rank this episode on a five point scale, what would you give it? Um, I think I would give it a 
I'm going between a 2.5 and a 3. Oh my God, we're on the same page. I was thinking the same thing. Okay. I was thinking the same thing. 2.5 to 3. I'm going to I'm going to say 2.5 just in case they do something a little better but still not quite all the way okay. there. And so as we continue to review the episodes, you know, that gives me a little flex room to you know to give a 3. I think this may be the highest rank we've given. Yeah, I'm going to say 2.5 as the well. Episodes so far. I'll say 2.5 as yeah. well. 2.5. So, okay. Cool, all right. So it looks like we got two down, one to go. We got one more episode to review. All right. So we will chat with you all later after the break. All right. So we are back ready to talk about our final episode. In this episode of Hellman Class Reunion, we will be discussing again, season one, episode five, which is called War of the Words. And this particular episode aired on October 29th, 1987. And the brief summary of this episode basically revolves around Maggie and Whitley in a debate over whether women can successfully balance a career and family life. And this is an actual debate, like debate team and everything. Mm -hmm. But when Maggie's boyfriend shows up, on campus and asked her to move to Washington, D.C. to move with him, the issues become personal. Yeah. So let's see. So again, we have the usual suspects in the episode. Same people pretty much as last time, except this time we have an appearance by... The whole Wayne's family. <laughs> yes, yes. If you did not know who the Wayans family was, you got a nice little introduction on this episode. So in addition to Kim Wayans playing the role of Allison... We have her brothers, Keenan Ivory Wayans playing Professor Warren and Damon Wayans playing campus DJ Marvin Haven. We also see an appearance by uh, Michael, who is Maggie's boyfriend, played by Dean Howell. And so we see the first appearance of the character of Millie, played by Marie Elise Rickastner. And so if you remember, Millie was kind of a short-lived character. She was only, she only stuck around the first season, but her mm -hmm. character was primarily <laughs> just there to be by Whitley's side. She was Whitley's yeah. right-hand man. And yeah, she, and <laughs> it's really right -hand girl. Right-hand girl, but she just popped up out of nowhere. This is her first time appearing on episode five and she was just Mm -hmm. her shadow so anyway it's funny how they just threw her in there right in the mix right um <laughs> so this episode again the usual producers marcy carcy and Be and betts george crosby beverly cashin joanne curly kerner joe gannon thad munford and tom warner we have direction by ellen gittleson who was ellen falcon at that time but now she uh, I believe is married. <laughs> and now her name is Gittleson. And writing credits go to Bill Cosby and Susan Falls. So we open up the episode with actually we're 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 seeing the girls wake up, Julissa, Maggie, and Denise to the sounds of Dwayne Wayne on his radio show. And they're all kind of discussing or they're just having a discussion in the morning and eventually conversation moves over to Maggie's boyfriend, the topic of Maggie's boyfriend and whether or not he's going to come to visit campus. Right. Because I think they have a planned visit, but he hasn't confirmed yet. So she's kind of waiting on a phone call, checking the mail, 
to see if he will be there. And admittedly, when she was talking about having a boyfriend on another campus, in my mind, I was like, girl, you know that man, she know you. <laughs> I know that's probably not right, but I was just, I don't know. That's where my mind went. I was like, I hope you don't think he being faithful wherever he at. Well, you know, they're not even sure if he exists. They think that he might be just a figment of her imagination because I guess she probably talked sure. about him for so much, so long. Right. And, you know, so, and then she's kind of, not cagey's not the right word, but she can't give a clear answer as to whether or not he's coming because he hasn't given her a right. clear answer. So it kind of looks a little bit suspicious. Right. That's what I was like, girl, that man cheating, but okay. <laughs> and then this is Friday. So the mm-hmm. niece wakes up kind of chipper because she feels like, you know, I don't have anything to do today. I can start my weekend early. And Maggie reminds her, nope, you have debate practice. You signed yep. up for a debate team. So we're going to go. And uh, so, yeah. So then I guess the next scene is seeing all of the students waiting for their debate professor to show up. Mm-hmm. And who walks in? None other than Keenan Ivory Wayans. Legendary. Yes. Keenan Ivory Wayans. I think by this time he had already worked with Eddie Murphy and mm-hmm. Robert Townsend. Worked with oh, Eddie wow. Murphy on his on his stand up with Delirious and Raw, and then with Robert Townsend on the Five Heartbeats. So yeah, Keenan Ivory Wayans. He's he's a trailblazer not just for his own family, but for you know black people in Hollywood and and comedy in mm-hmm. general. Yeah, and I'm sure at this time he probably was was in the beginning stages of working on In Living Color. Mm-hmm. Can't remember when In Living Color premiered, but yeah, it had to have been not too long after this. Right. And one of my favorite Wayne's movies was I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so what's interesting, I know this episode aired in 1987, right? Uh-huh. And so I'm Gonna Get You Sucker premiered in 1988. And so while we're on the debate practice, the thing that tickled me so much is during the scene, Kim Wayne, whose character is Allison, I think, was that the first time we found out what her name was or heard her name mentioned in an uh, episode? I don't know. That was the first time I noticed it, at least. Okay. Now, I, I, yeah, think, I, don't we, know if I the, think we might have heard her, heard her name mentioned before, but okay. I think it stood out because, you know, of course, we're seeing Kim Wayne's and Keena Ivor Wayne's in the same scene. Right. To me. But, yeah. That, that was yeah. That was that was the first time I had noticed that her name was you know the character's name was Allison, and I forget what exactly happened, but she has this laugh or she makes this noise, and it sounded just like it did when she's in "I'm gonna get you sucker" singing when the saints go marching in. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. I but did not. No. We made like the same laugh. Oh my God. I fell out. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get you sucker. And I think it's so funny that, you know, given the air date of this show and when the movie premiered, they were probably kicking it and had been filming I'm going to get you sucker at the same time. <laughs> probably. Probably. Yeah. There was a lot of synergy, a lot of cross pollination, yeah. you know, a lot of the, the characters it. and different projects and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, of course, the girls are really into Professor Warren. They, they're they talking about him before he walks in. They think he's cute. And then Keenan Ivory Wayans comes in. I don't think Allison said anything about <laughs> about his looks. She was just kind of sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably so. But yeah, girl. Because when he walks in for the scene, 
I also thought about the young professors we used to have in undergrad and how we would crush on them. And I was like, I want to see an adjunct. <laughs> Could be. No, seriously, like a lot of times, you know, the younger professors, they would be adjuncts or grad students, whatever. Yeah. So that was just a thought that crossed my mind, you know, as I'm reminiscing. It could be, you know, the first thing I thought of when you said that, I thought about, a, a, I don't know what season this was, season five or six or whatever, where Dwayne Wayne was on the other side of this. So Dwayne Wayne was, was right. And then Lena, played by uh, Jada yes. Smith, she had a little bit of a crush on, on Dwayne. Mm-hmm. And I think he was yes. a grad student, but he was, you know, he was, he was teaching class mm-hmm. all by himself mm-hmm. and. Uh, lines were getting blurred a little bit. Yeah. Whitley had to set that straight. Yeah, I, I remember very attractive <laughs> adjunct professor at Tougaloo. But anyway, moving on. Well, all right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Anti-Way. Another podcast for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, they are in, you know, about to start their little debate prep. And Whitley presents the topic of women whether or not they can have a career and family at the same time. And I think her position was that, you know, yes, you can have career and family, but one is going to suffer at the expense of the other. And Maggie and Denise, you know, scoff at that. They they think that that is a preposterous notion, especially Maggie. And Professor Warren says, okay, well, then that's that's going to be the debate topic. This is going to be it. And it's going to be Whitley and Maggie. And I'm assuming Millie is going to be Whitley's partner. And Denise gets roped in to be Maggie's Maggie's partner on this as well. Mm -hmm. Were there any men in this group? I I forgot to see. It seemed like it was all the girls. I remember when I was watching this the other day making a note. I think I may have written it down. I don't think there were. I was like, oh, this is like all women. It looked like it. I got Maybe I need to watch it again yeah. to see if there's any guys in the background. Yeah. From, from my recollection, it was all women. Yeah. So, so now we have, we have it set. We had the episode plot set where the girls are going to debate women and their ability to balance career and family, which seems to be the debate of, you know, forever, for all times, women. Right. Talking about their career and their family and having it all. Right. So then we get to the pit, the center of student life, and we see Damon Wayne. Yeah, Damon Wayne shows up looking like the cool kid, I guess. <laughs> Look, looking like the seer. Yeah. At Hillman. Mm-hmm. And so Damon Wayne shows up in the person of DJ Marvin. So when the girls heard Dwayne Wayne on the radio, that morning, I guess Dwayne Wayne was substituting for DJ Marvin. Yeah, yeah, he was he was filling in for him because he was that? sick. Uh huh. Okay, right. So Dwayne Wayne was. Oh no, I was just gonna Go say, ahead. and yeah, so Dwayne he he was really feeling it. He really liked the idea of having his own show, and uh, you know, but then the DJ Marvin comes in and he's like, you know, thanks, kid. I'll take my show back now. <laughs> And and Dwayne was like, well, wait a minute. You know, how can I be down? How did you get your own show? And he said, oh, yeah, I just waited for somebody to get sick. And he walked away. Right. So Dwayne's just like, ah. But he he does tell Dwayne Wayne if he can come up with his own show idea, mm-hmm. then, you know, there's a spot for him or there's a space for him at the radio station. There. So mm-hmm. Dwayne walks away 
pondering and trying to come up with a new show idea. And of course, he goes to the tables where the crew is, the usual suspects, and talks to Denise and Jaleesa and Maggie, and they're having a conversation about the topics that they're going to be debating. And there, it looks like they're doing the re, doing some research and discussing the position that they've taken and how they're going to support their position in this debate. Yep. And so while they're having the discussion, Dwayne comes up with a great new show idea called That's Debatable, where he will cover the debate because DJ Marvin did uh, also tell Dwayne that he could find campus events that he, you know, to cover as a part of his radio show. So he comes up with a clever, but simple, but clever title called That's Debatable. And Portia, you had a radio show in college, right? I did. Yeah. So technically I was not a student. This was while I was working. I, so I worked at my college the year after I graduated. Um, mm-hmm. So me and one of my best friends at Colgate, right? That's right. At Colgate, me and one of my best friends, Nuria, we both actually worked for a year after we graduated and we decided to host a radio show. WRCU was the station. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we had our weekly show and we just, you know, most of the music that we played wasn't really music that the studio owned so we were just playing cuts from you know our cds and just listening you know (laughs) our favorite music so it was neo soul and hip-hop pretty much and yeah that was that was my little brush with uh with radio stardom that was my moment as a dj yeah okay girl yeah we didn't we didn't cover any events we weren't we weren't like Dwayne wayne covering the events and okay but you know, we were just we were just on the ones and twos. Did you all do a lot of talking on the radio show or was it just you playing selection of music and then you left? Or did you take turns introducing the songs, etc.? How'd that work? Yeah, you know, we it was mostly playing music. We we would have moments in between songs to just chat a little bit, but it was a music show. It wasn't really a, a talk show. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's what's up. Yeah. Somebody somebody probably has a recording of our show somewhere deep in the crates. <laughs> I would love to hear that. I'm sure that's probably someone listening to this podcast who would get a kick out of hearing the radio show, especially 20, what, 21, 22 year old Portia? Baby Portia. Baby Doing Portia, baby Daria. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, then we get to a point in the episode where debate starts to imitate life or the great debate starts to imitate life because Maggie's boyfriend does finally show up at Hillman to visit her and he has an important announcement to make. Now that morning or I guess maybe the day before, whenever they, when the show opens up and the girls are in their dorm room talking, Maggie did mention that her boyfriend was planning on going to law school. However, during his visit, he drops a bit of a bombshell on her because plans have changed. He's taken a communications job in DC at the pork board, which sounds like (laughs) some type of industry group or lobby. Mm -hmm. And so not only does this go against their uh, professional development plans, it also seems as though him working at the pork board goes against their moral positions or standings. Really? In what way? I don't know. I got, and it's, it's not, it wasn't explicitly stated, but I got the impression 
that, you know, in going to law school, maybe the expectation or the plans were that they, you know, he may be a, a lawyer for the people. Whereas given that the pork board is an industry group or a lobby group, um, you know, it's it's a, basically about the dollar because she does make a somewhat cynical comment about the the health implications of eating pork. I don't know if you caught that. Mm-mm. I did yeah, not she, catch she, that. She yeah. Makes, yeah, she does. She makes uh, kind of like a very cynical comment about, you know, the negative uh, health consequences of eating pork. So that's what gave me that inclination that, you know, not only is she disappointed that he's not going to law school, but that, you know, he's going basically to work for a lobbyist and mm-hmm. a lobbyist in an industry that is not necessarily, let me see, what's the word I want? That, that, that some social advocates or, you know, some community advocates may not look upon fondly. Okay. Like so that. she's, she sees him as, you know, kind of selling out. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. No, but, but more than that though, she seems blindsided because this is not what they discussed. The plan was for him to right. go to law school and she was going to finish, exactly. you know, undergrad and I guess all and become a journalist as she's already working yeah. on it now. And so he just springs this on her, not only springs this job on her, but then he also wants her to come and join him. She, he wants her to right. leave Hillman after she just transferred there uh, just a couple mm-hmm. months earlier, I guess. Right. And now she's supposed to follow him to D.C. again after making this unilateral decision, basically. Mm-hmm. And so this really throws her for a loop because she cares about him. She loves him. And they have a bit of a an argument. And then he's, you know, he kind of is like, OK, I did this wrong. What I really meant to say was, will you marry me? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. throws her all the way off. <laughs> right. Because obviously, you know, she does have genuine love and feelings for this guy. So, you know, I think she she's considering. Absolutely. She, she's, you know, considering his proposal. His proposal. She's considering the implications of her leaving Hellman and transferring to yet mm-hmm. another school, going to a completely new city. You know, how is she going to build up her career? You know, what is what does this mean? And they've got to right. be what? Early 20s. I don't I can't even tell yeah. how old they are, but early if 20s. That, is right. that, yeah, because. Remember, Denise is a sophomore this year, so she might even be still in her teens. Might be 19. You know, Maggie's yeah. a transfer student, so she's like 19, 20. So she's a baby, practically. Yeah, this is a lot to have yeah. to deal with at such a young age. And it also, you know, presents to her or shows her that this topic that they are debating is not so black and white. It's not so clear cut, especially once you are confronted with such a choice in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, she has to now deal with balancing this career and, and family, family in mm-hmm. the, you know, in the sense of her boyfriend and possibly her future husband and, you know, what that mm-hmm. could mean. And, you know, staying true to, to her career by continuing to go to school at Hillman and, and really following her, her passion. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's hard and and what makes it harder like you said, she actually does love him and she could see right. herself with him, but you know, the timing may not be ideal. Right, not at all. But, you know, nonetheless, uh the debate 
prep continues, but we see, you know, in this episode and in the scenes that follow that Maggie is obviously, you know, very distracted by the decision that, you know, she's now faced with. And then we come to the great debate, the actual debate where it will be determined or decided upon, you know, do women really have to pick one or can they have both? So up first in the debate is Whitley. I I was really disappointed at the lines that Whitley delivered. Mm. Uh, I thought her position was very hollow and very patriarchal. And I think her, the, that point about, you know, when it comes to career and family, one is sacrificed. I think it's a legitimate argument, but not one that is patriarchal because what I gathered from what Whitley was saying was that, you know, a woman's place is in the home and it's a man's place to go out and work. Mm. What did she think of her debate? Yeah. You know, I, it was, again, we're, we're looking at season one True, and Although we're, we're, we're discovering or rediscovering some, some moments because, of course, we have this bias that season one kind of sucks <laughs> in relation to, you know, subsequent seasons. It's very, uh, it's hard to reconcile what we know Whitley will become versus how she is in this first season. It's like, gosh, Whitley, sure. are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you saying all of these things? You know, right. talk about a, a, a character arc for sure, because she did not end up in that same mindset by the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But um, right. yeah, you know, it, part of me is just kind of like, she really is representing a throwback a throwback to the point mm-hmm. where I'm like, well, girl, why are you even in school? If this is how you feel, why are you, are you one right. of those women that's, that you're really in school to catch a man? Like you're not here to actually become educated. You're not here to, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, uh, forge a career path. You're just here to get chose. And it's just, right. it's a little disappointing to see. Right. And so after Whitley presents her position, Maggie gets up to counter, but is obviously distracted by her own dilemma. Yes. Yeah. During during her debate, she kind of blurts out, <laughs> you know, she's making her points and uh, and she's mm-hmm. making really good points. And then she she is. Her, Go I was going to say her, her lines were definitely way more substantive than Whitley's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was she was well prepared. But then again, she was distracted and she kind of blurted mm-hmm. out because by this time, Mike had showed up and he's standing in the back of the room mm-hmm. watching the debate. And she blurts out mm-hmm. that she doesn't want to give up school to follow him to D.C. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's just kind of looking like, uh, OK, huh? what just happened? <laughs> and so then I think they had to give closing remarks and Whitley comes back up and she's, you know, again, giving very hollow remarks mm-hmm. and um, yep. Maggie is too distracted. She can't give her closing argument. So then Denise comes to the rescue. Denise comes up and is the backup to close out the debate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it was very interesting. Denise uh, used that as an opportunity to kind of speak about her own parents and the example that mm-hmm. she grew up with. So, you know, again, right. we're, we're hearing about, Cliff and Claire. And when you think about it, the, um, you know, it was, it was very refreshing for the time and, and, and kind of revolutionary, I, I guess, at that mm-hmm. time to mm-hmm. see uh, a married couple raising a family, but both of them are professionals. Both of them, you know, and she mentioned they put each other through school. 
they supported each other the whole mm-hmm. way. You know, they both took responsibility for the labor mm-hmm. in the household. Claire, you know, now we know that Claire is a partner in her law firm. Cliff has his own right. medical practice. You know, they really worked um, hand in hand to to make this thing work, to, to make their dreams work and to build this Absolutely. family. And they're still very much you know, a married couple in every way. So it was nice to just kind of know that Denise was able to, she picked up on that. She she paid attention. She noticed mm-hmm. that and she was able to articulate that and, and just kind of show her, her, her parents and, and in particular her mother as an example of somebody who could have a career and family and balance it. Definitely. Um, and it was possible. But then of course, for that time, you know, that that's an, that was an important conversation to have. We're only, I don't know, what, True. 10, 15 years after women's lib movement, right? Mm-hmm. So that was like in the 70s, mm-hmm. wasn't it? So that or was like in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Like late 50s, 70s. Yeah. yeah. So we're like 15, 20 years out from yeah. from women's lib and and this is still very much a conversation. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this. So the previous episode that we had just reviewed was talking about, you know, gender dynamics and now we have in this episode talking about gender mm-hmm. dynamic. Mm-hmm. And in several mm-hmm. Cosby show episodes, you know, we we see especially Claire. Yeah, we see it a lot. Talking about gender mm-hmm. dynamics, yeah, and and Elvin trying to challenge those and then getting promptly smacked down by <laughs> clear um so you know it's it's all the time all the time every time and it's so interesting how these two shows seem to and i you know maybe maybe a lot of other shows too seem to be very more comfortable talking about gender than they are Mm -hmm. talking explicitly about race now we'll see again when when debbie allen takes over we will confront race very explicitly but you know, it's it's just it's really interesting, you know, how bold the conversations are when it comes to gender and then how how careful the conversations become when you're talking about race. But anyway, back to the debate. So essentially, the theme of Denise's rebuttal is that you can have compromise versus sacrifice. Right. You don't have to sacrifice career or family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that takes compromise. But, you know, also, let's not neglect the fact that she's assuming that we're talking about a two-parent household situation. That, too. That's very, very important. In terms of this compromise thing, right? So, you know, we leave out the dynamics and all that goes into play and just the the nuances and and complexities of being a single parent. That's right. In terms of the family structure, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and what that is like. Yeah. Person being a single parent, whether it's a single mom or a single dad for various reasons, whether it's the the death of a spouse or divorce or not maybe having a relationship with the other parent. So but it's a 30 minute sitcom. So I guess you can't cover everything. Yeah, Those are the limitations of a of a 30 minute sitcom. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really glad you brought that point up because, yeah, it does kind of point to a more idealistic kind of situation mm-hmm. and you know especially now when you, yeah. you know when you bring the conversation to modern times people are are becoming mm-hmm. much more vocal about the labor that is done in the household and the division of that labor mm-hmm. and and what that looks like and you know and also just being very clear about or being honest about what you actually do so there are people who are you know have professional jobs or people who have you know are in a certain tax bracket And sometimes we're made to believe that they're doing everything. So they're picking up their kids, they're cleaning up their house, they're, you know, they're, they're doing all of it. And that's just not the case. They have help. They're hiring help. And, you know, one of the, 
one of the things that I feel like um, is is a fair enough critique with the Cosby show, if it were to be done again, I would like to see the presence of a housekeeper, a cook, something, because <laughs> ain't no way in the world you you going to tell me that they're raising five kids and they had no help. Right. Ain't no way in the world somebody's coming home and then they have enough energy to make dinner every night. That's just not, mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. buying that. Yeah. Not that so, realistic. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, a good episode. Oh, and then, so yes, yeah, so they win, right? Denise and Maggie, they oh, win yeah. the, the debate. They win the debate. And then Maggie and Mike talk about it and we find out that they agreed to just kind of slow it down. They don't need to move so fast. So nobody's right. getting engaged. Nobody's right. moving. I guess he's going to, you know, just continue to do his, his new job working for the pork people, the pork board in D.C., mm-hmm. and then we'll see mm-hmm. what happens from there. True, true, true. So to wrap this one up, I'm going to do my ranking first. Since I always put you on the spot first, I'll okay. put myself on the spot first. If I were ranking... In, or rather, in ranking this episode on a scale of one to five, I'm going to give it a two. I was going to say the same thing. Feels like we're copying each other, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> nope. We just, no. I, no I'd say this is a solid two. This is, this is a decent all. episode. You know, again, there's there's a little more meat on this bone than, than some of the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. I give it a solid two. Yeah. Cool beans. Well, this concludes our installment of Hillman Class Reunion. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Dr. LaRonda Ely. And I'm Dr. Portia Flowers. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Hillman Reunion, Instagram at Hillman Class Reunion, and Facebook at Hillman Class Reunion. Our original intro and outro music was produced by our friend and brother, Daquan Bowens, a.k.a. Killer Keys. You can get more information about him at DaquanBowens.com. That is D-E-Y-Q-U-A-N-B-O-W-E-N-S.com. The boy's bad. Check him out, please. He has some great original music and uh, tutorials, etc. We hope that you join us for the next episode of Hillman Class Reunion. Bye, y'all. Yep, Stay yeah. healthy. Bye. Don't Please. let that corona Watch get you. Water and soap. Water.